Well, hello everybody. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Oriana Bandiera, and I'm really delighted to welcome our two distinguished speakers and all about 2,000 of you to this year's Morishima's lecture in honor of Sticker founder Micho Morishima. For those of you who do not know it, Sticker is a wonderful research center at the LSE. I know it well because I've been part of it for 20 years and I actually had the privilege to direct it for 10. 10 years is a very long time and I learned a lot, although I kind of gave up on learning the acronym by about year three. There are two lessons that I want to share with you. The first is that I discovered exactly and precisely how much work goes behind the scenes and how the people who do that work make all the difference. For the reason, I would like to thank Nick Warner and his amazing IT team, Jane Dixon, who managed the center for over 30 years before retiring this March, and all the people in our fantastic admin team. Second, I had the privilege to meet Yoko Morishima and to find out about her role in helping Micho set up Sticker. We've now set up a new fund called the Yoko Morishima Fund for Gender Parity, and we have committed up to a million pounds to develop, test, and implement policies to foster gender parity in the school so that women's talent can be allocated properly and rewarded accordingly. My final and biggest thanks goes, of course, to Esther and Abhijit for agreeing to give this lecture, but more importantly, for bringing economic research where it's most needed especially in these times, which are way harder than probably what they were thinking about when they wrote the book. So the floor is yours, half an hour, and we'll have questions afterwards. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll take over for the first 15 minutes, uh, and then Abhijit will take over. Um, so first of all, uh, thank you very, very, very much, uh, Oriana, for uh, inviting us and for leading Sticker all this time. Uh, and actually, thank you to Jane Dixon, whom I had the privilege to meet uh, when I just started. I was still a graduate student, just uh, about to become an assistant professor and, and made my first visit to LSE. And she was an incredible presence in Sticker. And I'm sure I will be fondly remembered. So we had uh, uh, titled our book, Good Economics for Hard Times. And uh, we were wondering if we should rename it. Uh, and so we decided to rename it just a little bit and call it Good Economics for Harder Times and see whether what we had to say at the time is still relevant uh, to, uh, to the COVID, um, George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery uh, times that we are living now. Most issues that are uh, important today and people are fighting about are core economic issues. Uh, Brexit, of course, used to be looming large. Uh, people were also discussing trade, inequality, immigration. And uh, a couple of issues have recently made a big appearance in the public debate. Uh, one is the COVID pandemic and its economic consequences. And one is racism and discrimination. And those are also uh, issues that are that have a lot of economics in them, even if they are not uniquely economic issues. But unfortunately, uh, economists have lost most of their credibility with the uh, public. Uh, in fact, these are many of my sticker and LSC friends who were really, really sad by uh, the absence of uh, 
uh, take up of their uh, good ideas uh, during the uh, debate leading to Brexit. So this is a poll that was done by uh, YouGov in February of uh, 2017 that shows that uh, nurses and doctors are uh, widely trusted by the public, and this is before COVID, so I would be interested to see the, what people think of nurses today. Uh, but economists are some of the least trusted people about their own field of expertise. Only 25% of people trust economists when they talk about economics, uh, not to mention, of course, when they talk about other things. Uh, and the trust in weather forecasters, and that too in the UK, is twice as high as the trust in economics. And in fact, only politicians are less trusted than economists. And on core issues, uh, people strongly disagree with economists. So uh, here's a question that was asked by, uh, uh, to a panel of economists at the university. Uh, it's a panel that is run by the University of Chicago, Abhijit is part of it. They asked them uh, whether imposing new U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum would be good for American well-being. And a little while later, we asked the same question to, uh, uh, to the general public in the U.S. And 33% of people at the time thought that uh, it, was good for, it would be good for, the, uh, for American well-being. And I'm not about to show you the bar on expert. It's not a fancy slide with animation because none of the experts thought that it could improve American well-being. So that's one of the stark examples of how economists differ uh, with the general public on many issues. And it's not because the public has not heard what the economy had to say and we just should communicate better. Because even when you have experiments where people are informed about what economists think of an issue, uh, people very politely listen and they go on to think what they were thinking before. It has really no impact on, their, on, on moving their, their beliefs. So why this mistrust? Well, you know, one might have been wondering. One reason, of course, is people, economists are not very good at what many people think is their core business, which is making predictions. Uh, they have uh, consistently missed uh, all the recessions that have happened in the last few years, and they don't do much better than random chance. Even professional forecasters and the entire prediction department of the IMF are predicting uh, um, uh, future economic growth than random chance. It goes a bit further. Uh, you know, you might not be so... Uh, surprised uh, that economists are disliked. If you read this type of uh, op-eds, uh, of um, uh, headlines, that's from the New York Times uh, less than a week ago, uh, economics dominated by white men is roiled by Black Lives Matter. And it goes on to discuss the trials of the editor of the JPE, which is facing call to resign after uh, his uh, comments on Twitter were made uh, uh, widely visible. And uh, sort of this, if this is the outside face that economists give to the world, it's not surprising that we are not considered to be a particularly trustworthy place to think about such issues. Uh, and meanwhile, when people use the, what uh, economists have, have to say, it tends to be biased in, in, in the direction of, of status quo and of uh, market are fine. And so people, that also contributes to uh, people thinking that all economists are doing is to 
uh, defend the, the system the way it is and fail to see uh, the real uh, problems that exist. Uh, so we could just give up, you know, uh, um, shut, shut up and do our work. Uh, but I don't think we can quite afford to give up uh, uh, um, being a, playing a part in the public role. Uh, we have to, you know, today in COVID times, uh, people might think that what we do need is epidemiologists to tell us what's going to happen to the, uh, to, to, to the disease. They need vaccine scientists, they need sociologists. By the way, epidemiologists have their own issues in terms of protection that we could discuss as well. Uh, to talk about race, we need sociologists and we need historians and we need political scientists and really, really why us? Um, but I, th I do think maybe self-servingly that economics has something to bring to the table. And not only that, but that there is actually a, a great desire for many people in the profession to, to try and be useful. And one of the testament to that is uh, uh, since March, you have we have seen an absolute uh, a rush of people uh, working on all the aspects of uh, uh, COVID economics, from macroeconomics to thinking about how to change behavior, to thinking about how to develop a vaccine, etc. So there is really a great desire to, in the profession to not be irrelevant. And today there is also a lot of uh, uh, a lot of discussion on, on racism. And I do think that contrary to the perception that it's, we are just waking up to that, there is actually a lot of research on racism, on racial inequality, published in mainstream journals in the past few years, but it does tend to get down uh, uh, in the more um, um, politicized and in particular status quo defense uh, that represents economics more. So we wrote this book pre-COVID, pre, -COVID, pre uh, uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, uh, hoping to have a way of showing that economics can still be relevant, and in particular that a lot of the economics that is quiet is uh, uh, pertinent to the question at hand. And what we want to do today is just take, extract five lessons from, from the book which we feel are still relevant uh, to our times. The first one is uh, the, the critical importance of having a functional and legitimate government. So uh, the COVID crisis should remind us why we need governments. Uh, shutting down your business, uh, wearing a mask are all externalities and people are, are all involved externalities and people are not so keen to, to do it unless they are forced. So you need a government to tell them that you have to shut down. And we can see, for example, with today's reopening, that as soon as the, 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 the command, the, 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 you're not compelled to do this anymore, then people just stop. Uh, governments need to be in charge of having ventilators and vaccine efforts, of course, the economic rescue package. So this really is, in many ways, a make or break moment for governments. Either they are successful and show why we need them, or they are not, and then the uh, the, the type of deep mistrust that people have for politicians will uh, uh, could really lead us to to, to very strong uh, crisis. Uh, now I'm going to pass it to Abhijit for the uh, for the rest. So um, one of the um, one of the uh, I think 
perhaps positive developments of the last uh, few months is that governments in a number of number of countries have loosened their purse strings you do you do you don't hear as much about the you know the the the, the disastrous consequences of the deficit uh, that you used to hear in fact you hear uh, the powell who's a trump appointee and the head of the fed very much different defending a very liberal monetary policy and a general view that you know we should spend now and not worry about it for a while and that that clearly is also the view in europe in yeah, the european central bank has taken this view so ha- so has the the japanese central bank these are not known for their liberal monetary policy views but you it's clear that something has happened and that that's uh, that's sort of um, i think may stay with us in important ways nonetheless you start to see immediately the uh, the conversations about uh, you know uh, how this is encouraging lazy people um this is a quote from somebody very influential the chairman of the senate finance committee who says that you know the 600 dollar weekly payments were you know overpaid and they're going to be you know they're becoming lazy the, the old conversation about uh, you know how um, poor people are kind of instinctively disinclined to work and that you you need to keep them under the gun to keep them working that that conversation seems to have loomed back in even as i think economists are beginning to beginning to actually relax on that in india you have a very similar in india has actually not been willing to relax um the budget uh in the, the budgetary compulsions there's been um, multiple announcements there is um about how much the government will spend but most of that's in the form of loan guarantees and uh, not in the form of large cash transfers to to the population um there is i think interestingly pushback widely across the spectrum from anybody uh, lots of people who are kind of involved in in any kind of economic policy the chief economic advisor of the of the, the previous one uh, of the same government the the person who, the minister of finance the pre, one of the previous bjp ministers of finance who who was responsible for the you know the the financial uh, rectitude acts uh, in the uh, all of those people have been recommending moving out but in a sense at this point i think we've been so successful in planting this idea that um that poor people are absolutely on the brink of becoming lazy that nobody's uh, willing to really go there the most the indian government is willing to do is is kind of maybe allow some rescheduling of debt some maybe some debt that they don't expect to be repaid but not 
kind of an income guarantee. That's that is that seems still far away from where 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 they want to be. And I think that's all driven by uh, this very strong uh, belief that. Uh, maybe economists are less inclined to hold it now, uh, but the population, I think, often holds. So I think there is a, this is not entirely just just uh, politicians having bad judgment. It's also a, a broad. There's a broad fear, I think, in the in the minds of the voters of you know what will happen if fiscal risk rectitude is abandoned and. You know, poor people get, to, you know, to, money becomes too easy for them. And uh, what's in fact striking is that, of course, people are not crazy. They, are, they kind of understand uh, that, you know, this idea that as soon as you get any money, you're going to just stop working doesn't seem entirely consistent with the way they behave. So they, they, they we, we did... Uh, an interesting exercise. We asked um, some uh, about ten thousand Americans, roughly a representative sample of Americans, a set of questions about their, uh, you know, reaction to, for example, universal basic income. Um, and it's very striking how people react to that. When you ask them, how would you stop? basically working or looking for work, you know, 10% say yes. If you ask them, would everybody else do the same? And the answer is everybody else is going to stop working. So in some ways, we've been incredibly successful as economists in planting this idea that people, there is a strong income effect on on labor supply. um, And... At this point, I would say that the evidence, if anything, is rather, rather, uh, rather, um, uh, let me just stay on this for a second, um, rather weak. I, I don't, uh, you know, it's, we have, um, if anything, um, some studies showing that if you give poor people money, especially very people poor money or assets, they actually work harder than rather than less hard. I, I think the idea that the income effect is strongly negative on labor supply is essentially not in the data. We did a review, uh, sort of an article bringing together data from a bunch of uh, cash transfer programs of different kinds and mostly find essentially zero effect on labor supply. So I I think that that we're in this interesting place where I think this idea of, you know, this Victorian idea, which we have for long endorsed, has now such a strong hold on people's minds that policymakers find it hard to move away from it. But in a sense, this is this is perhaps the the need of the day. So we're we're in a in a bind of in a sense of our baking. Um, that's related to the next point I wanted to get, come to, which is that um, we have uh, long um, sort of uh, had to deal with the fact that, you know, if you take any policies, there are winners and losers and that the, you know, the winners are often uh, going to be um, going to be 
quite different people from the losers and and the and the usual response well, there are two responses to that both i think are somewhat misleading um and uh, in the con- context of post covid might be even more misleading um i come come to that in a minute uh, the, the the idea is that well people one response is that well yes people you know they people in the you know in the shoe industry will lose but they will the ones in shipping will win and so people from the shoe industry will move to shipping and therefore will be okay or whatever they'll go from making furniture to selling furnitures now i think one of the things that was never entirely true was that people is that easy for people to move so if indeed if they move then there's a single labor market and you know the all the effects on specific uh, specific outcomes will be diffused uh, quite easily now that was never as i said never true that people moved a lot but if you just look at geographical mobility one thing that's striking in the us and i think elsewhere as well has been the decline in mobility people have um uh, th- these are numbers for people moving within the same county people moving across counties and then the last the yellow bars are on people moving from from abroad and basically the, the striking facts is that overseas immigration is actually the part that hasn't changed very much what has changed a lot is mobility within the us this is sort of uh, you know goes back to the talk phil and his uh, marveling of how mobile americans are at this point americans are actually less mobile than many other people in the world and that's that's a something that uh, is obviously consequential in 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 a world where um, in a world where uh, you know there are lots of mm, sharks and people are uh, you know there's when you when you lose your job uh, that you you will have to move somewhere else to get a job because basically uh, the industries are relatively clustered and so once you lose your job your entire t- town often goes into a tailspin and so you need to move out and this this then constrains how much of that can happen um this is this is uh, related to um uh i think uh covid in an important way because i think what covid has done is that has highlighted how fragile our lives are how you know and i think this is true in the us where uh, you know people uh, once especially if the welfare checks stop coming and the economy remains in a tailspin people will have to find ways to survive and they'll have to find family uh, and if they're far from family then some other way of surviving and those that will be a challenge in india this was an enormous uh, problem because india the indian economy one of the main reason in the economy are the migrants but the migrants in india um, don't have rights to any welfare programs basically where they are the 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 welfare programs are tied to the domicile and if they are not at their domicile they don't have access to welfare programs what this created was this this mad movement of people millions and millions of people across the country because they were basically starving 
they had no place to live and no place to, once the job shut down and the economy was frozen, they had nowhere to, where to be. And again, the, the fact that the welfare schemes are, tend to be tied to specific locations has, uh, means that they, they then needed to move. Now, the next thing that's, that happened right after that is the economy started opening up, maybe rightly or wrongly. But when that happened, you, you start the, the industry kept complaining that they're not getting enough workers. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, it seems like once you've been, you know, you were starving, then you had to walk, uh, you know, 300 kilometers to go home and or go home in a crowded bus where you were exposed to the risk of COVID. And you hear that this might again happen. You may hesitate to go. So this this is one mechanism through of or through which the the COVID effect might actually be quite durable. Um, an, another um, another issue that, of course, uh, as Esther mentioned, that has been was in our book and in a sense has become much more highlighted by the current moment is this idea that you know pe- people are you know that there are social divisions and social divisions have of, of course very large consequences and um, economists have long had an uncomfortable relationship with this our gut instinct is somehow sort of a, a schizophrenic, either to say that, look, you know, it, you know, it's not there, it's, it's not happening, you're just misreading the data, or second, that uh, people are, uh, when you acknowledge it, you actually treat it as being something that's programmed into people in a sense as, as I think um, some several prominent economists of, of the 1960s and 70s said, well, if it's discrimination, the person who's discriminating is getting pleasure out of it. And so we need to worry about that. Now, I would say that one place where I think we are, um, you know, better positioned to think about this is, um, for example, uh, in, in, the, in the context of, um, of COVID, uh, one thing that's absolutely striking is uh you know this covid is something that is hard to blame individuals for but you can see that in a sense covid discriminates heavily uh, it um, black people were much 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 more likely to die than uh, than white people uh, so it, it, in michigan that's a, almost by a factor of 8 so the, i think that that particular um fact i think should bring home to us how important how important and unfair um, social structures are, and that you know social social divisions uh, are consequential, and that this is not because we are somehow mismeasuring something. Now, one other thing, which the on the on the more optimistic side, I would say that one thing that I think we've learned uh, from the re- the research in in economics in the last 20 years is that I think the idea that these preferences are deep preferences of people and need to be respected, I think has been, I think, significantly undermined. And this is a very nice experiment by um, Ernst Fair and others at, at uh, Zurich, where 
um, it was uh, the question was is is it the case that um, people have um, fixed preferences and and the way the experiments were set up was very nice it it had it brought in only bankers bank all bankers were brought in and then bankers uh, were divided randomly into two groups one group was asked to sort of primed on the banker identity they were told that they are in the financial business and all that the other other group of bankers was told that you know to reflect on the social identity and then they were put in given a to uh, invited to play a very simple game you go into a closed room nobody is watching uh, you can pick uh, and you you have to toss a coin and if you if you get um more um i, I think more heads you get um uh more money and um it's oh, i i i think that um uh, and so uh, you know you could either cheat and say i got 100% heads and or you could be honest and say i got whatever usually like 50% or close to 50% heads and you can see that the people who were primed on their identity as financial uh, sector workers were much more likely to be um to lie than the ones who were who were told that uh they were um they were, were sort of primed on their being social animals and and that i think is a reflection of the fact that in a sense we are many people and we might be racist but we're also not racist and i think that the construction of the social identity and the leadership we get is has enormous consequences for how, how we react to the current uh, crisis and i think they, they to say that so in some ways it gives us hope that if with the right primes and the right leadership we could actually move towards a society which is not so hobbled by uh, social divisions and the, let me and the final point i wanted to make um is that i think all of this highlights how much how fragile our lives are and the, and that uh, that's been in a sense something that we have as you can always only beginning to understand which is that you know we are we sort of used to thinking about um you know jobs and um you know maybe welfare payments and um as, as the fundamental measure of welfare and i think one thing that's very clear is that um people actually are more more um, complicated than that that it's not uh, not the case that uh even if you have uh, a job or even if you have a living uh, you are necessarily able to you know satisfy your emotional needs for recognition for status for being being a part of a of a good society and i think that pressure uh, is something that has been building for example among white people in the us for many years as wages have stagnated so they they may not be they they, are, they may not be poor but they're not any richer than they used to be and and as that has happened you can see that there's an accumulation of of people of white uh, americans who in the age 
you know, where uh, 45 to 54, where they are dying from opiates, they're dying from suicide, they're dying from alcoholism. And this, this is something that's been growing throughout. And I think it highlights the fact that when we think of the post-COVID world, we need to think about a world where, which will, will be a world where we more cognizant of the fragility of our lives. I think we want to design our social support systems, recognizing that people care not, not only about you know, incomes, but also about a whole range of, you know, of other outcomes which have to do with how they are treated by society. So designing welfare systems like in the U, not designing welfare systems like in the US where you have to basically declare yourself to be disabled to get welfare is going to be a way to provide uh, an important part of getting people to feel that, you know, when they are hit by shocks like COVID of no, through no fault of theirs, they're not being judged. They're, they're being uh, given what they deserve, which is des- uh, they, they are, they're bearing the shock partly because all of us want to be safe from COVID or from they're bearing the shock because all of us want to benefit from trade. And all of those things need to be taken into account. We need to give them the respect and the dignity, their res- the respect and the dignity back if we want them to participate and continue to participate in this economic game. So I think that it's COVID is an interesting moment for us. And it's um, because I think it highlights so many of the key, key fragilities and key crisis points that are, have already been there, which were kind of in our book, but are even more uh, salient just now. And, um, and I think that that hopefully will generate a positive conversation, which COVID and I think in some ways COVID and the, and the Black Lives Matter movement and what's recently happened, the recent history of, of racist violence in the police, all of these things have highlighted things that we need to, needed to be highlighted. And hopefully this will generate a positive movement, both within economics and in the world. And again, um, thank you, Oriana, for inviting us. Thank you to the audience for listening to us. And uh, I guess we're now going to, you you have a chance to ask us questions. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. If we were in London, there would be a big applause at this point. Imagine the virtual applause. (laughs) I I will now uh, read some questions. So quite helpfully, these uh, questions have been voted upon. So I can start with the most uh, question in most demand, which is, is nationalism and localism the future? And is this going to replace globalization? And if so, is it going to increase or decrease inequality? It's a very simple question. Of <laughs> you. I think it's a little bit too narrow and there is not, too, there is not enough uh, aspects to it, but I'm still going to maybe attempt. Uh, it's certainly part of the conversation. Uh, I, I think partly because people had, because there was pent up dissatisfaction about globalization anyway, and a lot of people see this as an opportunity to put it back on the table. Um, although we can, you can see if you read our book that we are quite uh, uh, critical of globalization, the way it has played out, it seems to be the kind of the wrong enemy to the wrong culprit uh, for the COVID crisis. 
uh, because uh, first of all, people move anyways, and it's not because of trade that they have moved so much more. So we, we can't really blame the, the spread of COVID on, on, on international trade. Second of all, um, people have highlighted the fragility of the global supply chain, but that's the counterfactual of a local supply chain. Is, it seems to be so much more fragile. So, and I think once people think about it with a cool head, they will realize that just doesn't make any sense. And I think, or I hope what we are going to find out instead is that that's going to be an opportunity to, to distribute the global the supply chain more widely. The way international trade is now is that it's become, it's, it's almost impossible for anybody new to enter the game because China and in, in particular is so dominant that even if another country is, would be good at producing you know, furniture, for example, establishing a reputation is just like too hard. And now that people realize that it is better in, if there is a risk of, uh, of an epidemic to not be entirely dependent on one place, not only China, but one town in China that produces this specific type of, of ball bearing, otherwise you lose your ball bearing. Uh, that I think, I think, I hope and I think that what we're going to find out is that there's going to be a slightly more, a slightly wider distribution of the, of the supply chain around the world, which actually could be a good thing. So that's how I'm thinking it's going to play out. Uh, but certainly it's a bit of a, I, I seem to be the only person <laughs> to think so, so I, I, I'm probably wrong. I want to add to that, which is that I think that it may need an act of policy because in a sense, diversification is a public good. I would rather buy from the cheapest supplier who may be in China, but I would really want Esther to buy from Vietnam so that we are diversified. So I, I think that it might require policy intervention. That's, that's uh, something that's not yet being discussed, but I think there is some value to having multiple sources in this world. And it's not clear that it's internalized by anybody. Maybe Amazon. But to you, thank you. Thank you. There are uh, a series of questions on how public policy should change or will change as a result of COVID 19. I will put them all together. Uh, there are questions that ask how the welfare system will change, whether there is an alternative to UBI, and, um, and whether there should be a refocus of government policy away from growth and towards redistribution. So how will COVID change government policy, if at all, on these margins? Another small question. Yeah, another yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. All... A little bit like, um, you want to start? Oh, so on the, so I think there is a normative and a positive question. So the normative question, to me, it's not fundamentally changed by COVID. Even before COVID, uh, we uh, were arguing, for example, in our book and to anybody who was willing to listen, that the, the, the social uh, protection system, at, as it exists, both in rich countries and in poor countries, is uh, uh, paralyzed and perverted by Victorian hangovers, uh, which is you know, completely obsessed by the principle that anybody who needs help is uh, potentially a leech and should be uh, watched very closely and given the proper incentives, all of which run counter to anything that 
we empirically know. So therefore, we were arguing before that, in, in, I think it's actually one of the really central points we want people to take from our book is that we need to completely rethink the very principle of the social welfare system. And that's not just the UK, which invented it for us. Uh, it's very similar in the US, of course, and it's very similar in, developed, in developing countries, which have seen fit to adopt the same principle. So this was there before. Now, COVID is potentially an opportunity, as uh, Abhijit was pointing out, because suddenly the need for social protection has become close to, not universal, but so much wider. And so much wider in a way that was so much sudden and so clearly not people's fault that I think it may change uh, the type of graph that we showed in the talk where we see that people think that themselves are very virtuous and motivated by work, but other people are leeches, which have really been a very strong barrier to reform in our, in our opinion. This might change after a situation like COVID where clearly it wasn't the case. And uh, even in the U.S., they went for like delivering, const you know, a, a large uh, increase in uh, 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 unemployment insurance for some time. Of course, the, the, in Europe, they, they, they put in place very swiftly wage protection. Um, so I think for a while, I was quite optimistic that we were on, on a good path. Uh, but of course, you know, as I put the quote in the U.S., we already have the discussion about how this makes people lazy and they don't want to go back to work and we have to stop, which uh, I find a depressibly, depressingly fast return <coughs> to uh, status quo thinking. So uh, maybe Europe will be different. Continental Europe will be different. I, I think the, the willingness of France and Germany to... Uh, basically through uh, the rule book of how they are doing uh, uh, financing in Europe is, is a good sign for a, maybe a mindset change, but whether it will extend to this fundamental thing, we'll have to see. So actually, uh, there are several questions all combined by young economies, students, postdocs, who want to know what can we do to change the public perception of economists, not as much to make us look better, but to convey these important messages. We know we have evaluations that show when you give more money or some assets to people, they work a lot harder. And yet the prevalent belief is the leash. So what can we do to change people's perceptions? Well, you know, I think that my sense is that uh, the burden of that has to be borne more by the senior economists who have more of a, uh, access to the bully pulpit and who can actually, um, you know, Oriana, you can go out and, and tell people about the wonderful things that happen when you give people assets uh, in Bangladesh and that this is a good thing and not a bad thing. And I, I think that, that that's, that's a sort of a... I'm not sure that, I think my sense is that it's the division of labor is probably 
mostly uh, right in the sense that I think young, the young economists should um, do the best research so that they win the chance to be the spokesperson in five or 10 years. I, I feel that, you know, trying to be, um, I mean, I think whenever we get a chance, we should speak out. But I, I do feel that this is probably a burden that you, Oriana, will have to bear more than your students. I think what, what students and can do is start studying those questions that uh, uh, continuing, as it's not continuing to provide evidence uh, on uh, racism and how to fight it, on climate change and how to fight it, on uh, um, the reform of social protection, on inequality. I think that the only reason we could write this book, this, this the first book that we wrote together was based a lot on our research and that of our kind of movement. This second book is mostly not our research and it was only possible because the profession itself has such vibrance. And this needs to continue and, uh, and, and you shouldn't get, uh, especially if you're undergraduate and you're con considering what to do next, you shouldn't get um, depressed by the perception that nobody listens to economists and economists have nothing to say anyways, uh, because the latter is not true and the former is true, but will become less true if we produce more relevant research and, uh, um, and we put it out there many people will be there to put it out there if it's good research. Thank you. You've given me a tough job. Now, uh, a classic question for you guys. Several people ask, not related to COVID, but what are the best ways to reduce poverty? Again, very simple, very concise. Uh, I, I think the answer we've given many, many times, I think is still the right answer, which is that Poverty is less like one thing, uh, one condition. It's, it has sometimes the same symptom, but often very different causes. There are people who are poor because they didn't have the access to the right education. Some people who became poor because they didn't have access to the right health care. Some people who didn't have access to the right financial uh, assets. So, you know, I think that the idea that these are uh, the same problem is, I think we know now is wrong. That in a sense, we know that poverty is kind of like cancer in the sense that there are actually many different conditions and each of which has a, you can resist each of them uh, in, you treat them in different ways. And I, I think that that's the right way to think about it. And that's sort of the work of, of JPAL is to, to, to treat the problem of poverty at the level, the granular level at which it exists, where it's really, um, this particular distortion of the education system is preventing a lot of people from learning what they need to learn. And I think that's the right level to fight it. So I, I think it's not going to have one answer. The answer is uh, everywhere in on JPAL's web, website. And um, I think that's the right level to fight it. Thank you. That one you knew how to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a question about uh, the recession, the next recession, and how the COVID recession is different from the financial crisis. 
aside from the causes, of course. So I think the financial system is... Um, uh, the financial crisis, in particular in the U.S., was... was um, in, in many ways, it, was an, it, it could have had an easy resolution, which was that you could have canceled the debt of a lot of people, but that was not politically acceptable. Given that it was not politically acceptable, the whole thing needed to be worked out through a bunch of indirect uh, measures, uh, because the core problem was a lot of people had housing that was underwater and they had no way of repaying, but they had lots of debt and, and somehow that debt didn't get cancelled. Now, this, is, this crisis right now, we don't have the same extent of debt overhang uh, that, uh, that drove that crisis. So in some ways, it's a, it's a different crisis, at least in the US. It's, it comes out of uh, simply people having lost uh, their livelihoods. And I think that if the government continues to provide them livelihoods, uh, they may, it might be relatively cheap to come out of it because people have money. And then, I mean, there, there's, there's possible responses which might make it worse, like, for example, a, a, tr a trade, uh, you know, a trade shutdown on things like that. And suddenly there are, the focus here now is much more on supply chains and how to restore them effectively. And if somebody along the way has, has um, you know, has not been able to repay their debts, how to bail them out. Um, I, I think that it's on the supply chain side, and I hopefully that's something that, and certainly in the U.S., the Small Business Administration has been given a lot of money to spend on that. It's, it's possible that we come out e more easily and without, with, with less consequences for inequality than, than the previous, the financial crisis. The place where it could become like the financial crisis is if uh, we don't manage that that transition, and we see basically the the the, the COVID-induced crisis is relayed by a more classic Keynesian demand uh, demand crisis because people have lost their paycheck, and then the unemployment insurance. Runs out because of the type of content we were discussing before. People stopped, the government stopped too early to give the transfer, and then uh, the, there is kind of a second round that will look more like uh, um, a demand crisis with, uh, uh, with leverage that we've seen as a consequence of the, of the, of the, of the financial crisis. But to some extent, I think this would be this this would be a self-inflicted injury if it happened. Um, I, I I do not put it past the the decision makers, at least in the U.S., to let that happen. Thank you. Um, there are several questions again about neoclassical economics versus what you do. Uh, so one reads: uh, You have both challenged prevailing economic thinking but the neoclassical consensus still seems to reign supreme in most economics departments. Are you still a tiny minority or do you see things really changing? I think things have really changed. I, I think that if you, I mean, I think the, the degree to which the empirical economist today is open to, you know, 
market failures and and behavioral uh, issues is is uh, enormously more than it what it was um 10 years ago and even and certainly 30 years ago <coughs> i think we are we're just in a different place so i i do think that within the economics profession people may still be maybe too too beholden to markets uh, but i think the the shift is still very large from where where it was and i am optimistic they'll continue as the evidence accumulates that people really don't <coughs> you know nothing in the world corresponds to the neoclassical model i think the questioning of the neoclassical premises is just much more common pursuit and is less of a default than it used to be <coughs> having just won the nobel prize in economics it would be a bit ungracious of us to describe ourselves as an unbattled minority i think <laughs> this is if, if any, it sort of goes as recognition by the establishment uh, to what extent just a follow up question to what extent do you think this is true in research but hasn't percolated into teaching and maybe people get an impression of economics from that one course in micro introductory that, that they do that is an excellent question uh, I, i think this is true to a large extent which is it's true in research less true in teaching and less true in uh, the way that uh, less true in undergraduate education than it is in graduate education and less true in the way that uh, <coughs> the the rest of the world perceives economics So the rest of the world perceives economics very much in the unreconstructed, not particularly sophisticated economics 101. Partly because everyone takes economics 101 and that's what they remember. So I know that there is an effort in the UK to, uh, to really rethink uh, economics 101 and Uh, I've, I've looked at some of the material and it's fantastic and I really wish Uh, this project to be successful. Uh, um, there is a lot of economics that can be explained, uh, uh, motivated by and illuminating the very important issues of the day. And that is much more interesting than uh, just tra tracing supply and demand curves and more stimulated for our students and we must and we can do better and your your effort there is really uh, um, fantastic to see. So for everybody in the audience who teaches economics, I think this is a call for arms to start teaching the economics which is done research and not necessarily only the supply and demand and edgework boxes which, you know, I've seen that time. Very good. Uh, I think we have only two minutes left and we have covered everything. We have an audience from everywhere. We have about 1,500 people connected and we have people from Brazil, Ghana, Zambia, Greece, Malaysia, Canada, London, Thailand, US, and Mexico. So this has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, again, a big virtual applause. Thank you so much. And the last thanks is to Lubala Chibwe, who organized all of this together with the LSE events team. 
Thank you. I know it was an unusual thing to do, but it came out absolutely brilliant. So thank you, everybody.